Hello. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Leading Questions, our brand new podcast series. I'm Krista Bands, and I'm a partner in the litigation, arbitration and investigations team here at Linklaters. And today I'm joined by my colleagues, Gavin Lewis, Ellie Parkhouse, James Bowen and Stephen Lacey. Through our leading questions, we're going to share our insights on the issues which we're talking about here in the team at Linklaters, as well as picking up on the legal news headlines, which are particularly relevant to those navigating contentious legal risk. We wanted to broaden those conversations. From time to time, we're going to take a deeper dive, slow news, if you like. But for the most part, we want to keep these podcasts short and to the point. So whether you choose to listen to this on your commute, when walking your dog, or at your desk. We hope you find it interesting and thought-provoking. In this episode, we're going to cover the surprising decision of the Supreme Court in relation to the Mariana Dam case and what it means for the future of collective redress claims in this country. Secondly, sanctions and the perils of a tick box reasonable belief defence, as highlighted by the Celestial Aviation case. And thirdly, the extraordinary Al-Sadat case and whether a non-party to litigation can claim litigation privilege. And we'll finish with a financial services supplement about changes to the Bank of England PRA's enforcement process and policies. Thank you, Krista. Turning then to the Mariana Dam litigation. This case captures two themes of the moment, collective redress and the use of litigation in the ESG context. It is one of a growing number of claims in which claimants seek compensation from parent companies for events said to have caused environmental damage in other parts of the world. That is to say, it is part of a trend. Turning to the case itself, Mariana Dam is a mass tort claim brought by around 700,000 claimants. It relates to a collapsed Brazilian dam. It is brought in England against two parent companies with interest in the Brazilian joint venture that ran the dam. And at first instance, the case was struck out with a challenge to jurisdiction. The judge effectively concluded that the litigation would be unmanageable here, given the concurrent redress activity in Brazil. The Court of Appeal disagreed. It said managing complex litigation is exactly what the English courts should do. The Supreme Court, though, has now refused permission to appeal on the basis that there was no arguable point of law for it to consider. So the Court of Appeal's ruling stands and the mass tort claim proceeds in England. This will be a surprising decision to some. Firstly, the Supreme Court seems to have taken quite a narrow view of the issues about the manageability of the litigation, particularly given the exceptional profile and size of the case. Secondly. For the Australian parent company, the Court of Appeal's analysis in declining to stay the proceedings on a convenient forum basis seems to have come close to the type of qualitative comparison between English and the local courts that earlier House of Lords cases steered away from. Overall then, the Supreme Court's refusal may contribute to the growing perception that England is a relatively claimant-friendly forum for collective redress claims. That being said, how such claims will fare when it comes to the substantive determination on the merits, is a different question. And in terms of the use of litigation in the ESG context, this case, along with others, demonstrates that claimants are showing real imagination and great persistence. We're seeing a vast spectrum of claims, from mass tort claims seeking compensation for harm, to the use of the courts to further the ESG agenda in corporate decision-making. Despite such claims having vastly different facts, causes of actions and merits, it is clear that the ESG theme is now common in English litigation, and it is one which will only continue to fuel the increase of such claims and their PR implications. That's it for Mariana Dam. Handing over now to James. Thank you so much, Ellie. I'll move on to sanctions 
and the perils of a tick box reasonable belief defense, as highlighted by Celestial Aviation Services and Unicredit Bank AG. Now, over the last year, almost everyone has found themselves having to navigate their way through the sanctions regime in circumstances where reliable information is hard to come by. The interrelationship between the sanctions imposed as the result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and English law contracts has given rise to some major headaches for companies and for their advisors. This has particularly been the case since March 2022, given the lack of clear information available from Russia, accessible from Russia, around ownership or control. Now, Section 44 of the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2018, SAMLA 2018, gives a defence to a party who would otherwise be liable for a breach of contract, where that party can show that it acted as it did because of a reasonable belief that doing so was in accordance with the sanctions regulations. There are also analogous protections under the EU sanctions regimes. What was interesting about the Celestial Aviation case, though, was that in this case the court showed that it wasn't prepared to allow a party just to check that I have a reasonable belief that this complies with sanctions box without investigating whether that belief really was reasonable. What a party can't do is to rely on this defence as a fig leaf for other motives for non-performance of the contract. For example, in a non-payment case, because it's more convenient to protect cash flow than to make a payment under the relevant letter of credit that may, but not necessarily is, affected by sanctions. Now in this case, as with so many other cases of this type, where we have to determine why a party acted as it did, it's very helpful to have clear, contemporaneous and candid records of what prompted the decision. This crops up so often, particularly around the exercise of contractual discretion, but it's often striking that there is so little on paper which would support the rationality of decision making. It's a real lesson for all of us around the exercise of contractual discretion that it's a good idea to have a paper trail evidencing the rationality of the basis for your decision making. Anyway, that's enough from me on sanctions. So now I'm going to hand over to Stephen, who's going to talk to us about litigation privilege. Thanks for that, James. So this is a somewhat extraordinary case in which a claimant says that he was wrongfully taken from Dubai to the Emirate of Ras al-Khaimah and imprisoned. He alleges that the defendant law firm was responsible for some or all of this mistreatment. Now, it was those graphic facts which are the background to a decision on litigation privilege of broader relevance. The question was, can litigation privilege apply where someone is not a party to a piece of litigation, but is simply interested in it. Specifically, in this case, the point was raised in respect of documents belonging to the Emirate, which related to criminal proceedings in which it was simply interested as having been the alleged victim. Now, the judge decided that litigation privilege could apply. He said this turned on whether the non-party had a sufficient interest in the relevant litigation. He thought that interest would exist where the non-party seeks legal advice about the litigation. And if it were then to communicate with third parties to ensure that the advice was properly founded, then in the judge's view, those communications would attract litigation privilege. That was not the conclusion reached in an earlier first instance case, Las Bambas, where the question was answered in the negative. So, competing decisions, what's the answer? Well, on one view, neither decision provides a sound answer. In al Sadek, the judge's test seems problematic in conflating legal advice privilege with litigation privilege. Las Bambas, on the other hand, 
involved a very unique set of facts which might provide a basis upon which to distinguish it in future. Instead, it's actually possible that the answer lies in an older Court of Appeal case, Guinness Pete. Now, we don't have time to examine that in detail, but there may be a view that, closely read, it supports the correct approach being a simple factual inquiry, i.e., are the facts exceptional enough for a non-party to have sufficient proximity to the litigation to be acquiring material for use in it in a conventional sense? Unfortunately, no one seems to be able to quite agree on precisely what Guinness P actually stands for. And finally, this all isn't an abstract point. Companies may have an interest in other people's litigation for all sorts of reasons. That may be direct, for example, an insurer, or it may be less so. For example, where there are ongoing proceedings against industry players of wider relevance to a company's activities. And these decisions define whether that bystander company can communicate with third parties about such matters on a privileged basis. So we'll be keeping an eye out for further consideration of this point in future, including whether the Alcidec case goes to appeal. So that's Alcidec and litigation privilege. Over to Gavin now and the world of financial services enforcement policy. This May, the Bank of England and PRA published their consultation paper on a proposed new approach to their enforcement process and penalty policy. It includes a new proposed early account scheme that firms can request within 28 days after the start of a formal enforcement investigation. What makes this really interesting is that if the firm cooperates and makes early admissions as part of the early account scheme, the PRA's then got a discretion to offer a settlement discount of up to 50% on any penalty. If the PRA accepts a request for such an early account scheme, it's likely to want to shape the scope of the firm's internal investigation and also to take part in witness interviews. The PRA is going to expect the firm's investigation report what it calls the early account, to be handed over in six months. It wants these reports to be supported by an attestation from a senior manager. The PRA is also planning to revise its penalty policy. Currently, it uses revenue figures from firms as the starting point to calculate fines. This produces some pretty unpredictable and perverse results, including the highest fine to date of £44 million. This approach has come in for a lot of stick because of the contorted ways in which fines are reached when described in enforcement notices. So the new approach gets rid of revenue as a starting point. Instead, it sets even higher ranges based on the size of the firm and the seriousness of the breach. For fines involving breaches that are of lower or medium levels of seriousness, the PRA is proposing ranges depending on which of four categories the firm falls into. Worryingly, no upper limits are suggested for fines where the breaches are serious. So just by way of example, a fine for a large Category 1 firm for a breach of high seriousness would now be set at £125 million or more under this new matrix. The consultation closes on the 4th of August. We'll be putting in a response, so please do get in touch if you'd like to discuss or to have your views included. Thanks very much for listening and look out for our next episode.